Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it impacts our lives. This summer, we are doing a special three-part series based on the book Gentle and Lonely by Dane Orland. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining me for this summer series are Vanessa Hawkins, Beth Benson, and Morgan Lewick. Ladies, let's take a minute to introduce ourselves, and we're going to answer our Something About Summer question of the day, which is, what about summertime makes you particularly happy and why? Vanessa, start us off. Yes. Hello, ladies. Um, Welcome back. Um, I'm Vanessa Hawkins, Director of Women's Ministry here at First Presbyterian Church, Augusta. And I would have to say my favorite thing about summer is just a natural break in the rhythms of work. Mm -hmm. Uh, The kids are out of school and um, summer vacation. And so all of those things that I get to reconnect with my people. Yeah. I love that about summer. I like that too. Except then my people, I like connecting with them for like the first few weeks. I'm like, well, y'all are awfully messy all of my space <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and you go well, my name is Beth Benson and I have been here for every single podcast episode recording, but you have not often heard my voice. That's right. Because I am the multimedia specialist here at First Prez. And so I'm the producer for all of these episodes. The so most of the time, the, the producer <laughs> the, with the mostest. <laughs> most of the time, I'm doing behind the scenes stuff rather than talking here on the podcast. This is a new challenge for me today. Um, something that makes me particularly happy about summer and something I'm looking forward to is that my husband is a teacher, and so mm. in the summer he has a lot more free time and a lot more energy, and so we just do a lot more things, and we really enjoy spending time outdoors we have a golden retriever and we really love going and walking with him at the park and hanging out we love to read outside while he like lays down next to us so those are some of my best memories and i'm looking forward to getting to experience that again this summer that's an idyllic memory i know i love that it is it's really nice sweet um i'm morgan lewick um i particularly love the long daylight hours and because I love to be outside but I I work during the day um and I too have dogs love to get hit the canal or just go on walks um or just be outside I work out outside as well so it's nice to have the sunshine I just feel happier when the sun is shining I can feel the the warmth of it on my skin and just like enjoy the outdoors so that's um super fun for me that is fun. Margaret, tell us a little bit about what it is you do as a job. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. So um, what I usually tell people is I'm a psychotherapist just because people are like, what is a marriage? So you see couples or you mm-hmm. you do this or that and they make assumptions that really I'm just a therapist. I just talk to people all day and um, <laughs> try to sort through um, deep emotional needs and issues mm-hmm. and traumas and, and things like that. So uh, this book, I felt like, was just so deeply intertwined with mm-hmm. what I do and gave mm-hmm. such helpful insights that mm-hmm. I think will be um, really, really important for how I love on people when they come to me. Mm-hmm. Very much so. You do that really well. Very yes, well. She does. I'm Amber Barrett, then, and I am a mother of three boys. I teach fitness classes and just got certified to do personal training, enjoy some of those things, mm. and... Yeah, it's exciting. It is exciting. I can make you sweat in the heat. <laughs> That's what we do. Uh, but what I enjoy about summertime, similar to you, Vanessa, is I do enjoy the change of pace. There's not someplace we have to be seemingly at every hour of the day right. and enjoy that. And then I also enjoy evening bike rides. So starting 
uh, just as it's starting to get to dusk-ish and then riding right in as it, it becomes dark. I love that time of the evening and that feel on a bicycle. So that's fun to me. About yeah, summertime. We, we ran into you guys a few times on bike that's rides right. last summer. Yep, so, yeah, that's right. Sometimes you really got to race to beat the uh, the darkness or the rain <laughs> yeah. or mm-hmm. things like that. But it is an enjoyable time to ride the bike in the summertime. Well, ladies, we are gathered here together to talk about Gentle and Lowly. And really, it is a wild, wildly popular book, I would say, within our evangelical circles. You, most folks I've talked to have either read it, they want to read it, or they have it sitting on their nightstand waiting to be read. I became interested in Gentle and Lowly because of Vanessa, your recommendation. Mm. And then I've become personally grateful for it because of Ortland's commitment to biblical scholarship applied to a subject that I confessed seemed to me like it had the potential to be overly emotionalized, mm-hmm. uh, the heart of Christ. And the fact that I was worried about keeping emotions, quote unquote, in check, as I considered the heart of Christ, has shown me how prone I am to operate with a somewhat removed understanding of Christ's heart towards me. I do this by assuming that Christ relates to me primarily in the way that I relate to myself and others, by prioritizing expectations, goals, and tasks that need accomplishing. But not only is this view unbiblical, because it really is based off of my own assumptions instead of the Word of God, I'm finding that it's heart-numbing in that it causes me to relate to God in a Mm -hmm. sterile, contractual sort of way. Mm -hmm. But Gentle and Lowly really has warmed my heart uh, with the truth regarding Jesus's heart. And it's a truth not of Ortland's own making, mm-hmm. but a truth given to us by Jesus himself. You know, when, when Ortland starts out his book in chapter one, he begins by saying that his dad, Ray Ortland, pointed out to him something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. Mm-hmm. And that was that in the four gospel accounts given in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, 89 chapters of biblical text. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart, and that is Matthew 11:28 through 30, that says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Orland makes the point here that our heart isn't, it's not speaking about our emotional life, but the central animating animating center of what we do. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It's our motivational headquarters. So Jesus is then saying that what is true of him at the deepest level, what we will discover more and more as we come to him is that he's gentle and lowly, thus the name of the book. Mm -hmm. As I was reading along, Dane Ortland gives some examples in that chapter one of other places in the Old and New Testament where the Greek words for gentle and lowly are used. So he sums them up this way. And if you're listening, I want you to think, how does this resonate with my views of how I perceive Christ's heart? The first he says is Jesus is gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is lowly. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Y'all, before you read this book, how would y'all have said that these statements did or did not square with your most natural and consistent thoughts about the heart of Christ? 
I think I had honestly thought of this more as being associated with Jesus' earthly ministry, mm. um, being gentle and lowly and being attractive to sinners, and, mm. and, and, um, but not, his, not the ongoing posture of his heart. Now, mm. I would have theologically you know, come up with that, and I would have said that, but it wouldn't have been my initial and my most natural thought. Mm. Um, I think I tend to think about his humility, his lowliness, and associate that with his humiliation. You know, um, him dying on the cross and um, and not his ascending to the right hand of the father and and not necessarily the day to day relationship. So, uh, yeah, if I if I were to be honest, I would say that, yeah, that's the the most natural thought is to think of him gentle and lowly, as he said that as a, you know, as a part of his earthly ministry, I would think of it more in that way Mm -hmm. and not necessarily as a part of my day to day. Mm. Yeah, of how he interacts with you on a regular basis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how he continues to have that same, uh, that's the core of who he continues to be even at the right hand of God now that Absolutely. he's not down in that type of humility, right. honor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, um, early in my uh, Christian walk, uh, I think I really felt that uh, his burden was heavy. Mm-hmm. I, I just felt that um, he asked a lot of me mm-hmm. and felt... Um, much of the time that I was not going to measure up, uh, that I wasn't going to be able to obtain the relationship with him, the holiness that he, it felt like he required of me. Um, and so I did feel like his burden was heavy up into a point, um, in my life where I really kind of crumbled and, uh, read in reading John 11, felt this gentleness and this lowliness and thought I understood it. Uh, but, some of the stuff in this book, um, particularly talking about God's glory and defining what that means in his gentleness and his lowly state that he uh, bent to come be with us, that his heart gushes with love and compassion and that tender mercy. Uh, this book really blew wide open what my view of gentle and lowly meant. And uh, I think that that's why I really love this book. It makes plain what is the cornerstone of knowing Christ, his gentleness and his lowliness, which I feel like makes him both accessible and safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, without that, a relationship with him, I feel, would um, be more of a threat than a promise. Yeah, I could see how seeing the Lord as safe would be appealing to you as a counselor because you spent a lot of time helping people feel safe. Mm. Yeah. The, the person of Christ, um, that's made plain in this book and really kind of goes into depth. This one particular verse that says gentle, that Christ is gentle and lowly. I think gives us that accessibility to him and that safety to him because we often think of him as holy, but not as gentle Mm -hmm. and not as lowly. And that creates, to me, almost a fear of approaching a holy God. And there is a place for holy fear, but not to the point where we see Christ as who he is not, Mm -hmm. which is someone who is um, accessible, approachable, and loving and kind. Yeah, I grew up with a very rules-based version of Christianity. Um, So those statements... The one saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is acceptable. And then the other um, 
that the most natural position to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Mm -hmm. Those are concepts that go against the grain in me. And Mm -hmm. reading this book was a really transformative experience for my heart, for my prayer life in a lot of ways. And it really comes down to, to those two things because I have always struggled with feeling like there are certain things I need to do before I spend time with God or certain ways that I need to act like there's a barrier there for me sometimes and I've spent a long time deconstructing that but this just put words to it in a new way for me that I really really appreciated we all are both touching on something that is brought up when we consider the gentleness and lowliness of Christ and not compared to but in conjunction with his holiness and his just wrath and his um judgment on sin and Orland doesn't doesn't deny that part of Christ Mm -hmm. in this book but he gives us a way in which to see that this is it's a comprehensive viewing of Christ and so to not say I can't consider the gentleness and lowliness of Christ without putting this other view in danger Mm -hmm. or vice versa Mm -hmm. Um, he really puts some great words to how we view Christ as both. So Vanessa, can you speak for a minute to how do then, or how does he, and how do you reconcile the revulsion Christ has for sinners, for sin, excuse me, and the tenderness he has for sinners. So the revulsion he has for sin and the tenderness he has for sinners. That's a great question. The Lord created all of humanity in his image and imbued us with glory and honor. And he decla- when he declared that humanity is very good, he hasn't changed his mind about that. And I think it's the truth that I often remind myself of and how I relate to myself as, as well as others. Um, we continue to have that beauty in reflecting his image. And as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, sin and brokenness infected us, all of creation with sin. And while we remain beautiful, we're broken and infected by the sin of our first parents. So you know, the Lord doesn't despise us for being infected, but loathes a sin disease that infects us. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of this when I consider, for instance, my own child and how I relate to my child. I, a couple of years ago, you may remember my daughter um, in her freshman year of high school was sick for nearly all of the school mm-hmm. year. And it was just such a hard, long year. And we were still dealing with transition stuff. And um, and, and then her sickness and just, but it was a year of running tests and trying new meds and trying to get diagnoses, et cetera. And neither of us were getting much sleep and she was just in pain all of the time. And that was just so hard. It's hard for a parent to watch your child suffer. And all I could think of is that I wish I could take that from you. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could have that. Mm-hmm. I could take it from you. And Jesus wanted so much to rid us of our sin disease that he became what was killing us Mm. so that he could strip it of his power. Mm. Um, He took on all the the father's wrath towards our loathsome sin disease to restore us to health and to give us eternal life that he created us to enjoy. And so I'm glad that he's not changed his mind about who we are to him. We're still those made in his image. We're beautiful but broken, but we long for the day when he comes and makes all things new. Mm -hmm. Mm. Oh, I really like that illustration because... Your daughter could have thought in those moments, mom has to be so frustrated with me. Mom's not sleeping. She has to make these doctor's appointments. Um, She knows I'm cranky because I don't feel good. You know, all of the sorts of things. She could have viewed herself as an inconvenience Mm. or or something that you wish you didn't have to deal with. But instead, she knew from your actions towards her that you loved her in that that place Mm. and that you were more than willing to absorb 
the cost of that. And that's really what Christ proves to us, that he loves us in that place of our brokenness, such that he absorbs that cost. Yeah. And we, like her, are tempted to think those things. Yeah, totally. uh, but I'm, I'm being a bother. Mm-hmm. And, and we just evoke this deep pity yeah. from him and this deep love and this deep concern um, when we are at our weakest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Christ really proves that in the way that we see him interacting with people in the Gospels, you know, the fact that he came to earth in flesh and blood and walked around historically, factually true, and we have record of those accounts of who he is, we see um, in a very unique and unquestionably powerful way exactly what Christ's heart is through his actions as well as through his words. And so his actions, you know, when you see him in the Gospel, uh, we see him coming to people who are broken coming to people who are weary, who are heavy laden. We see Jesus touching and cleansing those that nobody else would come near. Mm -hmm. We see him opening the eyes of the blind. We see him putting strength into the legs of the Mm -hmm. crippled. We see him offering forgiveness before those who received it even knew that they should ask. Mm -hmm. We see him weeping over the death of a friend. And we see him weeping over the depravity of God's people. Mm -hmm. We see him constantly, intentionally, and joyfully moving towards those whose needs could not be covered Uh, who had nothing to give in exchange for Jesus's favor, but who simply cried out for mercy and received it. So in light of all of that Jesus shows us that he does in the Gospels, Ortland says, if the actions of Jesus are reflective of of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. And what do y'all think about those statements? I mean, there are some things that might kind of cause us to raise an eyebrow and think, hmm, really? Is that true? Is that biblical? How does it affect the way I think Christ views me? What do y'all think, Morgan? Yeah, I, I really was struck by something that he talked about later in the book, which was or maybe it was in this chapter, but he talked about how uh, the more we are suffering, the more we are sinful, the more irresistible that we are to him because he knows, he is the man of sorrows. He knows sorrow more than we know sorrow, and he knows the devastation that comes from sorrow from sin, sorrow from sickness, sorrow from suffering and affliction. And when he sees us in that way, because he loves us so, that it draws his heart to us in a way that is so tender mm-hmm. and compassionate. It's like we're irresistible to him because he sees the pain and he comes mm-hmm. to heal and he wants that more than he, we even want that, mm-hmm. more than we even know to want that. That's so good. And again, you know, Christ receiving joy that, that we receive the help and mercy that he died to give us, that, it makes perfect sense. You know, that's that's reasonable to me, yet it's not always a reality that my heart, it, it just immediately entertains. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I wish it were, <laughs> but it's not always my immediate, you know, my immediate conclusion. Um, what is your immediate conclusion? Well, I, it's, it's not always that um, he wants to draw near to my brokenness. And sometimes we do see him as that one with the finger pointed or right. you love me and you're drawing near to me, but it's kind of a, he talks about the slumped shoulders. It's, yeah. it's feeling that. But why wouldn't an all-sufficient Christ be attracted to my mm-hmm. deficit? Why wouldn't he be? 
Um, it's natural that he would, but it's just a lot less natural that I default to that in my, in the belief in my own heart. Mm. And then that brings me face to face with my own inclination to earn the love he's given. Mm. And so I have to remind my heart, I have to rehearse those truths mm. to myself uh, when I'm tempted to believe something lesser about who he is. Mm-hmm. I love how you said that. Why wouldn't the all sufficient Christ be drawn to my need? Mm, yeah. That's what he has to supply. Right. Why wouldn't he be drawn to right. the one to which he could supply it? Like that. And I think that's the exact concept that I struggle with the most and that was most shocking to me when I was reading this because I feel I have struggled with feeling like that my needs put him off. Mm-hmm. Like my that he is not desire to be with me in that way. And I know that that's a lie. I know that that's not true. I know that he wants to be with me. He desires to draw near, but that's hard for me in my heart to believe. Like I can say that I know that, but it's more difficult for me to, to live out of that. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, like I tend to put up a barrier. So Mm -hmm. I just loved, um, he has just, he does such a great job of connecting it to the Bible in this Mm -hmm. section. And one of the verses that he uses is he says, this is John 17, 24 father. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Hmm. And that idea of being with the Lord hmm. and coming to him is just repeated over and over and is so alluring and beautiful. And it, it it's just so wonderful that our God, it, that Jesus is just irresistibly attracted to these things that I feel like he would put him off for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's yeah. not true. Yeah. That is, that's, I love the John 17 passage. I also love a quote that um, Ortland says that it has really resonated and stuck with me he says that our hearts are factories of fresh resistance yeah. to the love of God and it's like man that just that's that's it I mean mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. he's just really named why we don't default to that we yes. we, mm-hmm. we consistently and constantly resist the love that he's pouring out mm-hmm. yeah the whole idea that we're actively resisting it yeah is so interesting yeah it's yeah. so easy to fall into just yeah. like mm-hmm. perceiving have this need or I have this sin and I, and, and I've got this perspective of this is what the Christian life looks like. And again and again, I fall short and it almost feels like approaching him with my face cast down, like again, you yeah. know, I'm bashful yes. holding back. Like again, I have a need. Yes. It's Sorry a, it feels like you. a burden. Yeah. 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 yeah exasperation was the word that that he's not exasperated i tend to think mm-hmm. I, I i don't as much question whether he will receive me but the the posture in which he receives me mm-hmm. like you said that slumped shoulders are just really again mm-hmm. yeah and the, but you think of how christ teaches us to pray give us this day our daily bread mm-hmm. those daily provisions mm-hmm. of of mercy that he longs to give us it's a really sweet thing mm-hmm. You know, it it talks about in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and that we do not have a high priest. Jesus, our high priest, he is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Orland talks a lot about what it's like to have a high priest who sympathizes with us. Mm -hmm. Morgan, what did you learn in chapter four about Jesus being that high priest? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think often in my mind, when I think of Christ, I think of him in heaven seated on the throne um so the humanity of jesus that's in comes alive in this chapter and, and his 
ability to sympathize with us, not as like to pity us, like to pat us on the head and say, they're there. Mm. Or even to say, man, that must be hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crickets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, and, but, but rather the, and, and Ortland says it like, he calls it the depth of solidarity, right? Because he's able to sympathize with our weakness. And, and I loved this quote from the book. He says, Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless Superman. He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared on the cover of men's health. He had no beauty that we would desire him. He came as a normal man to normal men. And I think that his priestliness is particularly particularly poignant uh, because of his humanity and his ability to sympathize with us. He was like us in every respect except without sin. And this not a discouragement. And I have had this thought of like, yeah. isn't it kind of discouraging that he is without sin because we're so sinful? Yeah, like right. I can't relate. I can't compute with that. But he says it's not a discouragement because he knows the temptation more truly than even we know the temptation. Mm-hmm. And having gone through that temptation purely without sinning provides us a rescue. And if he needed rescue himself, we, we would be a lost cause. Yeah. Um, so I really loved that. Well, and he gives that illustration too. I like this where when you're saying that he didn't know sin, but he knew the temptation of sin fully. And I think it's C.S. Lewis that gives a description of mm-hmm. how much more he actually knows that temptation because how much longer he bore it without giving into it. Mm-hmm. So he he talks about a man walking into a super strong headwind. And the longer he walks, the more intensely he knows how mm-hmm. strong that wind is. The sooner he quits, the less he knows. And so it just resonated with me like, yeah. oh, wow, he does know yeah. right. uh, that temptation and all the burden mm-hmm. of that because he never gave into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, well, he's able to sympathize with us. And it also means because he can do that, then he deals gently with us in our weakness. Beth, what did you learn from chapter five about the ways that Jesus deals gently with us? I think this idea of Christ as a co-sufferer was really interesting to me because I so often feel um, loneliness or shame in my sin or in my suffering. And I really loved how he dived into that here. And again, how he talks about that idea of we must come to him, how important the coming to him is and how that elicits tenderness. And I really love these two quotes from page 54. He says, Ortland says, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Hmm. And then later on, when we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us and he doesn't handle us roughly. Hmm. That idea of coming, just coming to him and, and being with him and taking those, taking those things to him. Like I don't have to get myself together to come to the Lord. Um, and he also later, he finishes his chapter by saying we should anticipate only gentleness. Mm -hmm. So anticipating gentleness, gentleness and the fact that he doesn't handle us roughly, those are really, those were really foreign concepts to me and they're things that I still struggle with. So when I really think about my consistent thoughts, those two phrases are shocking to me because I do think that I expect a punishment or a scolding or just like I have to be, like we've already talked about, like I have to be of a certain attitude or something to come to the Lord. And he really deconstructs that here. And I love that. 
Yeah. That's so good. I, I love that the premise is to come to him mm-hmm. because I think what I had not really sat, just sat in and, and thought about was um, the proximity that's required for gentleness. Oh, I, had, I, I hadn't really thought yeah. about that. Um, you know, of course, as the high priest, he, he sympathizes us uh, with us, but he isn't just hurling out instructions over the balconies of heaven. You know, he's he's drawing near and he's inviting us to draw near mm-hmm. close enough to represent the people to the father uh, in both his past experiences, but also in his present care. He's saying, come to me. And so um, he's not just that one who is, um, as Dane Ortland talks about, often he's not the one who's pointing the finger but he's close enough to embrace and so it just that that type of gentleness requires uh, proximity mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah not hurling over the balconies of heaven yeah. that's a good way of describing that you know when you think about him dealing gently again that question can come up what about the wrath of god um poured out on sinners so who does he deal gently with and ortland makes the point that the only people that Jesus does not deal gently with. He says it like this. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, quoted from Revelation. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. Mm -hmm. I thought that's really quite quite something just the passion of that gentleness but that wrath and that the only prerequisite is to come and it says that whoever comes to me i will in no wise cast out and all that the father gives to me whoever comes to me i will in no wise cast out mm-hmm. you know sometimes our sin causes us to doubt this promise you know sometimes it's our sufferings so sometimes it's our sin and how we feel like the lord views our sin but sometimes it's just sufferings that don't necessarily have to do directly with our own personal sin. And Ortland puts it this way. He says, as pain piles up, as numbness takes over, as the months go by, at some point the conclusion seems obvious. We have been cast out. But Jesus does not say that those with pain-free lives are never cast out. He says those who come to him are never cast out. He gives in his book, Ortland gives in his book, this illustration of what it looks like for the Lord to hold on to us in the rough ways of life. And he talks about his two-year-old son, Benjamin, and walking into the pool, and Benjamin doesn't know how to swim, and they're walking into the shallow end, and then they're obviously going into the deep end, and as the waters start to rise, and it gets frightening, Benjamin, of course, clings on to his daddy's hand. But he doesn't have the strength as the two-year-old when those waters really rise and he begins to go under. He doesn't have that strength in that little hand to hold on to his daddy's hand. It's the daddy's hand holding on to him. Mm-hmm. And I loved that illustration. He, he sums it up like this. Orland says, so with Christ, we cling to him to be sure. But our grip is that of a two-year-old amid the stormy waves of life. His sure grasp never falters. Psalm 63, 8 expresses the double-sided truth. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. How have y'all found that this double-sided truth to be true in your lives? This particular verse has been my mainstay throughout the um, pandemic. And I I tend to cling to him more intensely in trouble. 
yeah. while his hold on me is consistently secure. And I think that that's what this passage reminds me. It's so comforting for me to consider that not only does his right hand uphold me, but that no one can pluck me from his hand mm -hmm. and that he will in no wise cast me out. Never, ever cast me out. That's such assurance. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're there, you're there and you can't, you know, you're not going to get away from him. You can't mm -hmm. squirm your way out. And that's the security my weary soul needs so many days. And so that passage of scripture has been what I have feasted on mm -hmm. lots of days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this verse uh, and that concept of his grip on us, there's really no other way to have joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow than to know that a loving and gentle and compassionate God is holding me and sustaining me through that. Uh, otherwise, we would be crushed. Yeah, and yes. um, and so it, it's, it is kind of this little, it's a, a double-sided coin, mm. but that's the paradox of the gospel is it just, it doesn't make sense intellectually, but as Christ carries us through experientially, we know these things to be true and we know our God to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're going through it, in some ways it feels like you are clinging on with all your might, right? There's effort in the clinging. Mm -hmm. And as you move through and as you come out, you look and you think, man, he sure was holding on to me. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you recognize your weakness even in the midst of you exerting all the effort you have to give. Mm -hmm. And you recognize that was more than, that was more than I was, <laughs> what I was putting out. Mm -hmm. You know, he held on to me. But, it, but at times it does. It feels like I mean, work, I guess, it, it, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But it's a fruitful work. It's a promisedly fruitful, promisedly fruitful. It doesn't make sense. Promised and fruitful work. <laughs> <laughs> For me, this brought to mind a particular time when I was a junior in college. And it was, you know, a normal semester of college. And I was quite close with the Lord at the time. And he had told me to read Psalm 23 every day. I'd been, I felt like he had directed me to read that. And so I was doing that for about a month. And then I got a call that my uh, close family member had committed suicide. Later that week, another family friend committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And it just, um, the tragedies of life continued to pile. Uh, my dad lost his job. I, a boyfriend broke up with me. There was a lot at one time that was felt mm -hmm. overwhelming and felt like I was drowning. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I continued to read Psalm 23 and I, I clung to those words that he had been teaching me for days and weeks ahead of time before I even knew or could anticipate any of this happening. And I, that, that is one of the most true times I think of this being in my life, but I felt like I couldn't do anything. All I could do was read that passage of scripture. And I, I knew that he was holding on tight and it, that is a time that I, I continually look back to of, the Lord took me through this. If he took me through this, he can take me through anything. Mm. He holds on to me tightly. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks. So powerful to have those points in time where we go back and know that we were being held. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how he initiated that, how he grabbed onto your hand yeah. first. Yeah. It was, it was beautiful. Just that, and the, the power of scripture in that time, yeah. uh, more than I've ever experienced it in my, mm. my whole life. That is really sweet. And Morgan, you said it well, to be united to a gentle and lowly Savior who will not let us go, 
is the thing that allows us to travel through life without being um, undone, um, without being overtaken, without quitting and giving up. This is the last quote from Ortland. We're going to conclude with this one, and I love how he sums it up. For those united to him, the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You are not a tenant. You are a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and comfort. Whatever our present spiritual accomplishments, it is who he is. And with that note of encouragement, thank you for joining us for our first discussion of Gentle and Lowly. We hope you will join us again first Friday of next month. Take us for an evening bike ride or sit with us while you watch your kiddos play in the pool. We will be discussing chapters 9 through 16, which speak to truths concerning the emotional life of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, the mercies of the Father, and several more. Hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again. A season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain.